Welcome to Have a Life Teaching, the podcast designed for educators who are dedicated to enhancing their teaching practice and creating a positive impact on their students' lives. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the world of education, exploring a wide range of topics related to curriculum, instruction, and assessment in K-12 schools. Together, we'll learn from the brightest minds in the education field. So if you're a passionate educator who's ready to take your teaching practice to the next level, join us as we explore the exciting world of education. My name is John Shimbari, signing in and saying, let's have a life teaching. Everyone, thanks again for joining another episode of Have a Life Teaching. Really excited to have you here today, as always. And, you know, I want to talk, and we're going to talk today about the importance of assessment. Don't groan, because it can actually be very interesting. It could be fun. It can really engage students in learning, because the reality is assessment is and should be so much more than just paper and pencil tests. Now, those are important, and they're not going anywhere anywhere for a number of reasons. But again, assessment could be a great way to not only engage your students, but really to make sure that you are targeting your instruction to the specific needs of your students. So with that in mind, I'm really excited today to have as my guest, Star Saxton. Star is the Chief Operating Officer of Mastery Portfolio, which is a collection of web-based tools designed to improve education practices. And their flagship offering is Mastery Book, which really helps teachers, instructors, not only record their assessment results, but actually analyze the data from that results or from those results so they can be making those instructional decisions to meet the students where the students are at. In addition to her work with Mastery Portfolio, Star is the author of several books about assessment and is the former co-director of professional learning with the Core Collaborative. Star, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, John. I'm so excited. I could talk about assessment all the time. And for those people who don't think assessment is something awesome and even kind of sexy, they have something to learn about what it really is. Star, if you could tell us a little bit more, I know I did a very brief intro on you, but if you could tell us a little bit more about you and your journey in education and how you came to make assessment a big part of your work as an educator. Sure. I was a New York City public school teacher for 16 years. I taught high school English and journalism. And in that time, I had the opportunity to really explore practices. I think that when I started teaching, I did assessment the way assessment was done to me. And so I thought there was only really one way to have a class. You know, the teacher talks, the students listen, they take notes, they take a test. And what I realized very early on, because I worked in a low socioeconomic situation with my students who were reading under grade level the whole nine yards, I realized very quickly that traditional learning was not going to be effective for the group of kids that I had. And so even though I didn't know any better yet, I started trying out different things that I thought might get them to come to class a little bit more often. And by the time I had gotten to the job I was at the longest at WJPS, 
I had gotten more comfortable in the classroom. I had gotten more comfortable including kids in a lot of my decision-making practices. So instead of being the only person in the room who could make decisions, I slowly started inviting kids into that practice with me. And we would co-construct assessments together. I also stopped giving traditional tests. I stopped giving traditional grades. And the more I started pulling away some of those traditional structures, the more I noticed kids enjoyed coming to class. They weren't afraid of the rigor of doing really creative synthesis work, which masquerades as fun so kids don't realize that what they're doing is actually 10 times harder than regurgitating facts or just answering some questions about things. So my class became a much more project-based group collaborative and then kids would demonstrate learning independently after they did the work in groups and When I started to see how little my original assessments actually did to reach kids where they were, I definitely needed to reconsider, first of all, what was I assessing? How was I assessing it? How did I know what I was doing was actually on the mark? Not enough of us ask those questions. We just make a test and think that it's good. And when I had done national board certification, I had the opportunity to do a lot of reflecting myself. And I was like, you know what? I need to bring metacognition into my classroom. I need to invite student voice into I need to ask them what they actually learned and I need to ask them to demonstrate it instead of being the sole maker of a test that may or may not address all the things that we were supposed to learn in that particular time period. And the more I invited student voice, the more collaborative class got. And the more I realized how little my colleagues were doing things like that, which is when I I wrote Hacking Assessment, which was what I was doing in my class. And it was just, you know, sharing that with the world when a lot of people started asking me, how do you do that? That kind of how it became the focus. And then all of a sudden, it's all, it's all I ended up doing, it feels like sometimes. <laughs> Good thing. I heard a lot in what you were saying. I heard particularly that we can think of assessment as a way to engage students, but still really assess if our students are understanding the material that we're presenting them. I also heard that if we think about, for example, project-based learning, like you mentioned, it's a great way to assess students in a non-traditional way, And also, too, what I heard was that it's a way, too, to get students involved in thinking about their thinking and analyzing their own growth, whether that's PBL or another form of authentic and alternative assessment, which are often the terms associated with with PBL as well. When we talk about assessment, a lot of times teachers will say, well, I want to see how the kids do after the fact. And that is definitely a reason to assess. But In addition to helping students to control their own growth, to be proactive in their own learning, the way you mentioned before PBL can do, what are some of the other ways we could assess and when should we be assessing? First of all, I want to point out two really important distinctions. Assessment, the noun versus assessing the verb are, it's at the a heart of where I think a lot of misconceptions about assessment ends up happening. Um, Summative assessment 
is something you do at the end of learning so that we could see how effective our instruction was, what kids know and can do, right? But everything leading up to that summative experience is formative, the, a formative assessment process, not individual things, but an mm -hmm. ongoing process that should be iterative. If we have kids setting goals, we want the learning to be personalized. Yes, we have um, competencies or standards that we have to meet as educators, but I do think that every single child comes to us with a different set of skills and different levels on things, regardless of whose class they've been in before yours or whatnot. So expecting to teach a room full of 34 kids the exact same way is foolhardy, in my opinion. Teaching them to be able to identify in them in their, their own learning, looking at learning progressions where they understand their own strengths and we could have this asset-based conversation and teach them how to set goals for themselves, then we do these small formative tasks every single day in our spaces. So if we're using the workshop model, kids have an opportunity to learn something new, and then they have a lot of time to practice using the new information. That practice, all of you listening who have those very peculiar percentage breakdowns on how grades should be, formative assessment should never be graded. I'm going to keep saying that over and over and over again. Formative assessment should never be graded. It's practice. Would you want your evaluation to be based on the first or second time you tried anything? And we do that to kids routinely. You're right. I've seen colleagues grade first drafts of writing, which is abhorrent in my opinion. I, I am a writer and I would not I would not want to submit my first draft for a final grade. That seems cruel. The, the whole point of the process is to get what you need to say initially on paper and then get the feedback you need. And the learning is really in the revision. When you think about that formative assessment process, whether you're teaching math, science, English, foreign language, whatever you're working with, the practice that's going on is where we're providing a dialogue of feedback with the students. We're getting them to really be able to look at their goals, really be able to articulate what they're doing well and where they still need work. They need to be able to talk about how they know that about themselves, that whole visible learning, where am I going? How do I know when I'm getting there kinds of things? We really need to make sure that we're being responsive to what we're learning in that formative assessment process. That's the piece right there because so many times those high stakes summatives end up being the end of learning, never visit it again, we just move on. The whole point of the formative assessment practice is to make sure that by the time they get to the summative, they've had ample practice to be successful at that point. Speaking about formative assessment, because I agree with you, Star, I think we need to put more emphasis on the formative. Again, summative isn't going anywhere for various reasons. End of learning, whenever that occurs, whether that's the end of a unit or the end of the year, it's not going anywhere. Uh, those paper and pencil, multiple choice, short ex extended response, not going anywhere. But you hit on a really important thing, and that is as teachers, if we really want to see if our students are learning the material, they have to practice that material. Like you said, most of us aren't going to get something the first time around. We have to continually practice it. And in addition to that, that formative assessment also tells us as educators, oh, by seeing my students practice this, I see that they got this part of the task 
but they haven't gotten this part of the task, even though I thought I taught that part of the task. So let me go back and pivot. Let me pivot my instruction rather than waiting to the end of learning when it's too late, when you don't have any more time to teach that particular content and you find out your kids didn't get what you thought they were getting all along. When we talk about PBL, and we'll, we could talk about that a little bit in more detail a little later, and maybe even a little bit more about student portfolio assessment, because I'd love your take on that. Those are formative processes, because like you said, even a portfolio can help students to say, okay, this is where I am now, and this is where I'm going to go next, and how I'm going to get there. Both PBL, project-based learning, and student portfolio assessment, particularly if it includes student conferencing, where students are leading the conference and the discussion about where they are in reaching certain standards, that takes a lot of time. There is validity to the fact that our teachers are overwhelmed. What are some, so since we're going to talk about those more extended types of assessment, what are some quick formative assessment hacks you might share with our listeners? So, I mean, I bet a lot of them are already doing it. The question is, what are they doing with it once they do it? So like exit tickets, for example, I wouldn't hang my hat on exit tickets as the only means of finding out whether or not your kids got it, but it's certainly something that most teachers do already. As long as you're using an exit ticket as a means to, I taught a really hard concept today, I want to see how many kids do it, I've collected these exit tickets, and let's say a third of the class didn't get it, and that is very evident by the exit ticket. Now you have an opportunity to pull, pull a small group the next day, and if your classroom is already used to a culture of PBL, then they could work independently doing their work while you pull that small group. And that's one of the things I love about doing PBL in general is, first of all, you have objectives you need to meet, but there aren't any specific ways that that is written that says it has to be done a specific way. Kids could take different approaches depending on their learning styles. And yes, it's going to take more time, but you're going to be covering more standards at once. Like the whole inquiry process is something that gives kids an opportunity to stay invested and engaged in what's going on because you're not giving them all the answers up front. You're asking them to figure out a lot of stuff on their own. Now, I'm not saying dump the hardest thing you have on your kiddos right at the beginning and hope they get it on their own. What I'm saying is you're going to be building a robust structure in your room where kids are accustomed to taking on challenging problems and you're giving them feedback from the beginning. The very, 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 they choose their topic, they set up their plan, they set some goals. And while they're working in their small groups, and for you, this is gonna be much better too, because you're not gonna have 34 kids submitting the exact same assignment that you have to read 150 times because you're doing it in every single one of your classes. You're going to get creative, different assignments that are going to address the same problem a dozen different ways. It's going to be more interesting for you. And since they're going to be doing that work in front of you every single day, and you're going to be providing feedback from the jump, at the end, you're not going to have to put in all the time you would have put in to grade all of those things because you're already acutely aware of what they've been doing. And they've been checking in with you regularly. You've been pull pulling your small groups, making sure where every kid is getting what they need to be successful. And I feel like that's really, for me, 
project-based learning was like the gift of time because I was better able to personalize my class. Kids could make choices. I could have small group instruction. I could do whole class instruction too. Like if more than one group said, hey, Ms. Saxton, I don't really understand A, B, and C, and I'm on group three now, and they're all struggling with the same thing. I could easily say, you know what, we're going to stop for a second. I'm noticing that most of you are really struggling with this concept. We're going to just take a minute as a whole class to review that concept again. So there's this organic interplay of this is what they need right now. I feel confident enough being flexible to address that specific need. I, I don't necessarily plan for that, but because I've already done the project myself ahead of time, I know the objectives and I probably in my own mind figured out this might be something they could struggle with. I'm ready to just say, okay, we're going to stop for a second. Somebody tell me what you think is supposed to be going on here. And then let's hear another thing about that. And let's as a group really make sure we're on the, the right path before some other kid spends another week going down the wrong path. And now we have to start from scratch and they've lost a week of time. Frankly, for teachers who are like, I can't personalize learning because I have 34 kids in my class, project-based learning is going to be the easiest way to personalize right. learning space for sure. You know, the other thing that's really good that listening to you reminds me about when it comes to PBL is the process, right? So students are starting at a point, but as they're doing the project, they are increasing their knowledge and hopefully getting better, not only at understanding whatever the content is, but the skills that you're also perfecting in project-based learning, skills of cooperation, skills of research, and that as we keep getting back to, students owning their own thinking owning where they are in a process and what they need to do to move forward to, to learn more. On that note, you have a lot, well, I know you have a lot of experience on this, what I'm about to say, and I think it's useful to talk about it. So let's say students have created a project and you've done PBL, whether that's collectively or individually, they could then put that in a portfolio to really be able to see their starting point, their end point, and where they're going to go next. Where would you, or how would you recommend our teachers listening today, our educators listening, also consider implementing student portfolio assessment? So I've been in schools where I've done it independently in my own classroom. And then I've also been in schools that had whole school-wide portfolio assessment practice as a part of the way we assess, particularly at end term and how we did parent-teacher conferences where we were doing student-led conferences in lieu. Of, we're going to sit down with my grade book and I'm going to tell you what you already know since you could see it online yourself these days. It's not like parent-teacher conferences when we were kids where none of that was exposed to parents. And right. the only time you really learned anything was when you either went to the school or something bad happened and they called home. Student-led conferences in portfolios are really an opportunity for students to be the ones to say, okay, we've co-constructed the criteria of what good portfolio work looks like. You know what mastery of each of these skills looks like. We've done project A, B, and C. Which one best demonstrates your ability to do those things? That's up to you to make that choice. And then when you put it in your portfolio, why did you select it? How does it demonstrate the skills? So there's like these two parts of portfolio. It's the actual learning 
But then almost more importantly, it's the reflection on how the learning meets the objectives. And we're giving kids the vocabulary to be able to say, this project, I know that I've met these particular standards. I've worked on these skills. This is the content that I've learned. If you look at this part of the project, you'll see the depth of understanding over here. And if you look over here, there are areas that I know I still have to work on. When they have a body of work to draw on, having those conversations with them becomes a lot easier. One of the things that I did in my class, I mentioned earlier, but I didn't grade them. We had assessment conferences because at the end of the day, I did have, I worked for New York City Public Schools. I needed to put a report card grade like my colleagues. Um, I didn't have the luxury of just skipping that part because I didn't do it in class. Having those conversations, yes, they did take a lot of time. I'm not even going to sugarcoat that, but the richness of those conversations I looked forward to in every single class because I learned so much about the kids and what mattered to them and where they felt they were really improving and what kinds of learning activities really worked for them. So early on in the year, it gave me an opportunity to get to know what they liked, what they didn't like, as I was teaching them how to talk about their learning in a meaningful way. And then at the end of the school year, the conferences were, I, I've recorded a few, you could see them on my YouTube, cha my YouTube channel, listening to kids talk about their learning. The level of understanding about themselves, I, I have never met an educator who has watched any of those videos and not sat in awe of some of those students talking about their learning. And some of them weren't even my quote unquote, brightest students. But because we had a culture of learning in that way, in the space, the ownership of that learning be became something every single child took very, very personally. And the, the way those conversations happened were just so much better. And if you ask any teacher, how would you feel if your students could do this? They're going to say really good. So if one of my kids said, you know what, I deserve an A minus because I can do A, B and C, I'm going to be like, all right, well done. <laughs> exactly. I, the grade for me was so insignificant that it was just like, if you could talk to me about what you're working on, how you're working on it, and you could demonstrate what you've already shown proficiency or mastery in, then we're good. You said a lot of really good things here. Now, remind me, Dar, what grades did you teach again? I was mostly high school. I would say that for the longest amount of time, I taught 11th and 12th grade English. I taught AP, I taught journalism, but I taught everything from 7th to 12th grade. And I taught U.S. history one year as a humanities-based class in middle school, all the way through AP Lit. So my question is this, because I know some people are thinking it. Portfolio assessment, PBL, could work really well with middle school and up. Maybe our younger kids can't do as intense self-analysis. And I know you are a high school educator. But assessment is your jam. How would you recommend for those teachers and those educators listening who work with younger students, how can we start to get them involved in this process? So when they do reach middle school and high school, they could do portfolio assessment and PBL more effectively. I do want to say this before I even go down this road. Sure. I know a lot of elementary teachers who are doing this work with kids as young as second grade, as soon as they could read and write on their own, they are able to do this stuff if you teach them how to do it. And the ones K, you know, PK to two at that point, 
you could have conversations with them. You could ask them to draw. You can do different things that still allow them to talk about their learning, help them understand progressions. I've seen elementary teachers using colors instead of words about how they feel about things. They use emojis to help kids talk about things. So I, I think you adjust the way they communicate, but the idea does not change. Nice. Um, you know, you you change the language of the standards because obviously a second grader isn't going to understand some of the language, but they do understand concepts. They do oral stories, for example, before they could write. I know that's a part of the curriculum where they're telling stories. So th they do learn this the same concepts of what is cognitively appropriate at those ages. And if teachers in the PK to five range want to see kids doing this, the Core Collaborative has a YouTube channel of just that with some brilliant peer feedback from six-year-olds that are like, you would be surprised at how technical they could be about like when you teach them that this is what you're looking for and this is what it looks like. And this is how we highlight and work when we're, they take it really seriously and they're actually really effective at probably being more honest than high school kids are because at that age they really don't know how to be dishonest honestly or they're not really worried about grades the same way secondary kids are so it's not like there's a it's not bad for them to not get it yet so star is there anything we didn't talk about that you thought we were going to talk about that you want to get out there for our listeners? Um, I would just say like, there are certain things you can do right away. Like I mentioned metacognition and reflection. If there's one thing you take away from this, if you're not ready to change the whole structure of your class, you can always add reflection into everything that you do. Hallelujah. Um, asking kids to tell you what they learned and then provide evidence to support the things that they're talking about. So they're not just saying, when you say reflect, the first time they hear that, they're going to expect you to, they're going to tell you what they liked and what they didn't like. And that's not what you're asking them. What you're asking them is, what do I know now that I didn't know before? And how do I know I know, I know it? How can I demonstrate that? And any kid who can answer that question in a way that makes sense for them, if you're not in an English class where they need to demonstrate it in writing, because writing is a part of your standards, let them do a flip grid. Let them draw it out. Let them talk to you about it. Like there's no one right way for them to tell you, but if they can tell you, then that's good enough. This idea that it all has to be done the same way is just not. So thank you for that, Star. Where can people find you and your work? Okay, so I'm kind of branded Ms. Saxstein. My website's Ms. Saxstein. I'm at Ms. Saxstein on the platform formerly known as Twitter and on LinkedIn, Star Saxine. You could also see stuff about Mastery Portfolio at masteryportfolio.com. We love helping schools with mastery learning in a lot of different ways. And our tool is really meant to simplify those homemade spreadsheets that you're making for yourself to track kids on specific standards. And the best part about the tool itself is that kids could be a part of it too. They reflect directly in the tool, directly in the teacher dashboard. So teachers have that information right next to each other as they're doing their work. And I don't. I, I think anytime we can invite kids into that part of the process, it makes it even more authentic for them. Thank you so much, Star, for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening today. 
I hope you got some great tips that you can bring back into your teaching. Remember, have a life teaching without sacrificing your own. Also, don't forget to subscribe and be well.